Hello, this is Jenny, the colorectal intern. I'm incredibly sorry for the late consult. My knuckles were white as I gripped the open medication chart and progress notes, which were held on standby, ready for a barrage of closed questions from the aged care registrar on the other end of the phone line. It was 3.45 p.m. on a Friday, and I expected to be berated for asking for this untimely consult for consideration of inpatient rehabilitation for my patient, which probably could have waited until Monday. I was shocked instead to hear words of praise on the other end. What a fabulously concise yet detailed consult. Thank you for outlining all their allied health reviews and goal and rehab goals. Sounds like he needs inpatient rehab. I'll bring the aged care boss around this evening. Four years on and maybe even a decade or more on, I can say that unexpectedly positive response from the registrar has left a lasting impression on me. Welcome to another special guest episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind with your hosts, Dr. Josh Hurwitz and Dr. Michael Fernando. How are you today, Michael? I'm very good, Josh, and I'm so looking forward to our guest today and all of the pearls of wisdom she might have. That's it. So today we have the honour and privilege of interviewing Dr. Jenny Liu, an early drug development slash phase one trialist and medical oncologist at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Jenny. Thank you, Josh and Mikey. And oh my gosh, where did you find that uh, horrible piece of writing? <laughs> I mean, I think it was pretty good. There were a couple of uh, um, grammatical things we could talk about. But, <laughs> but, um, this, but this is an literary podcast. Yes, and you can see why I chose to be a doctor and not an author. <laughs> no, it was great. So for those who didn't realise that, it was written by none other than our interviewee today. Jenny, before we get into the nitty gritty of our podcast, I have a little bit of an introduction about yourself just for our listeners, if you bear with me for a couple of minutes. So Jenny, I think Michael and I would agree in saying this, she is a rising star amongst early career oncologists. Jenny has or had already achieved more than most of us before pursuing a career in oncology. Having completed a PhD during her medical school training, she was awarded the University Medal in Medicine, which is the most distinguished academic award bestowed to an undergraduate at the University of New South Wales. That is a top 50 university, I think, globally. Jenny completed her PhD in 2011, and this was on colorectal cancer epigenetics. And during the rest of her training, she's managed to maintain an active research role along with getting her letters and specialization. Concurrently, she's also an honorary researcher at the Garvin Institute and visiting scientist at the Children Medical Oncology ProCAN group, where she liaises with collaborators nationally and internationally to utilize novel high-throughput mass spectrometry pipeline with accurately measures tumor tissue proteomes to identify signatures associated with treatment response and outcomes in multiple cancer cohorts. But on top of that, Jenny has an active phase one trial development schedule, works full-time at the Kinghorn Cancer Center, and manages to publish a significant amount of research. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Josh. I'm incredibly embarrassed and flattered by your introduction, but it's lovely to be here and talking to you both. And a novelist as well. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, 
Jenny, I, I wanted to start by talking about your PhD and specifically, I guess, what your chosen topic was, what it was like doing a PhD in and around sort of university before you had gotten onto the, the medical rat race, as it were, and how that has informed not just your medical knowledge and practice going into oncology, but also how it's informed your subsequent career as a very prestigious researcher. Yeah, so I guess, Mikey, my uh, my route in training is quite atypical in that uh, many people tend to do, especially in oncology, a PhD towards the end of their training. Uh, I really got uh, an opportunity to do research with uh, quite an esteemed clinician, scientist, Professor Robin Ward, who now heads Sydney University, uh, Faculty of Medicine and Science. But back then, she was a quite avid oncologist and researcher. And then during my honours year in uh, medical undergraduate school at UNSW, met her uh, and got to understand some of the research she was doing in bowel cancer being such a prevalent cancer with very high unmet need. One of the things at the time I was interested in looking at was environmental factors that increased risk of some bowel cancers that had aberrant DNA methylation profiles. And through the honours project, I got to explore methyl donors, folic acid, and the influence of dietary factors as well as alcohol on the development of these cancers. It took me a long time, though, to establish one of the assays to measure folate um, using mass spectrometry. And because I couldn't really see the fruits of the labour of my honours through just the one year, I made the quite difficult decision to defer my undergraduate training to continue that research in a PhD. On one end, I think that was quite sort of challenging seeing all my friends graduate and start working ahead of me whilst I was sort of slaving away at the lab and doing 70-hour sort of weeks, uh, dissecting my guts and all sorts of fun things, growing organoids. But it, I think the PhD really taught me lots of skills in terms of research, in terms of synthesis of data, collaborating with uh, scientists and other clinicians, setting up a tumour biobank and growing uh, these mini guts, which I like to call sort of um, uh, organoids. Uh, and all of that uh, really came together in a, a nice body of work where I was able to set up a new method for measuring folate uh, species in bowel tissue and identify some new relationships between how folate was processed in the gut and how this could lead to abnormal methylation and a subset of bowel cancers. It's quite exciting. Over 10 years uh, from the PhD, one of the um, LGR5, which is the target identified back when I was doing my PhD as a stem cell marker in bowel cancer, has actually now been translated into um, a CAR-T product. And in fact, recently at St Vincent's Hospital, we've been selected as a lead site to actually run this CAR-T trial. So it's actually brought my research over a decade sort of back into relevance again in terms of my role as a phase one oncologist. So would never have predicted that as a medical student. But I think certainly doing a PhD is not sort of for the faint-hearted and one of the key things I always tell my colleagues and my peers considering a PhD is to always pick the right lab 
right project and pick something you're really passionate about and sort of the rest will work out. Jenny, one of the challenges we always have on this podcast is the last two and a half minutes of you talking, I have about 40 plus questions and I know we have to sort of move, move on to kind of get a big picture, but there is one, I'm going to go on a tangent here. Tell me, can you tell our audience a little bit about CAR-T therapy and also I guess why we don't see it very much in solid organ cancers? Yeah, so... Certainly CAR-T is a very big area in hematological malignancy um, and I think we are at St Vincent's Hospital very fortunate to work uh, alongside some established hematologists who have been working in CAR-T space with various hematological malignancies uh, for uh, quite a while and we've got several active CAR-T trials that are um, recruiting at the moment. So I think many uh, of the listeners will be familiar with the basic principles of CAR-T or chimeric antigen receptor, um, also known as chimeric immunoreceptor um, therapies. And these are basically cellular therapies and receptor proteins that have been engineered to give T cells the ability to target a specific antigen. And so the ideal target for CAR-T is an antigen that is present on tumours that is not present anywhere else in normal tissue. One of the challenges in solid organ malignancies is that, unfortunately, tumours, solid organ tumours, are very heterogeneous and they undergo clonal evolution as the cancer starts from a single tumour into, you know, multiple metastases. And so finding this um single antigen target is really challenging. One of the other things with solid tumours is just getting the CAR-T into the tumour can be very hard because of the very immunosuppressive tumour microenvironment. So to date, I don't think there's been, you know, that much widespread success in terms of CAR-T therapy. There's been a few very exciting case studies, including an N equals 1 study published in the New England Journal last year in pancreatic cancer, I'm not sure if this new trial uh, that we're going to run will be able to emulate that success, but certainly I think there's a lot of ongoing research and work into this space. You can really see the thorough and very deep understanding of just the basic concepts of going into of, of large research projects, uh, Jenny, just just in the way you uh, describe something as complex as, as CAR-T. But there was one part to to drag Josh off his tangent. There was one thing in his uh, introduction that I wanted to you to talk a bit more about because I must confess I'm not too familiar with it and that's your uh, ProCan program. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about this before we get into the nitty-gritty of of phase 1 studies as as a um, as a concept, I guess. Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, this probably comes uh, back down to the challenge that we have in terms of identifying biomarkers of uh, treatment response and also uh, prognostic biomarkers to understand, you know, which patients with good prognosis, head and neck cancers that I treat in my day-to-day practice won't um, have recurrent disease and potentially could benefit from a de-escalated therapy in which patients, even those with the good prognosis HPV-positive head and neck cancers, uh, have 
aggressive biology that might need more intensive treatment and surveillance. At the moment, uh, we are quoting patients sort of probabilities of their cancer coming back, but there is really increasing interest of doing multi-omic analyses of tumours to understand uh, better uh, biomarkers to predict treatment response and resistance. So the ProCAN team is a large academic team uh, headed by Professor Roger Riddell and also uh, Phil Robinson. So Roger is a scientist uh, but actually did train as a medical oncologist many decades ago. Phil Robinson is a proteomic scientist and several years ago they had the very ambitious um, idea to set up a very high throughput facility where they have multiple mass spectrometry machines and to churn through hundreds of thousands of tumour samples of all different tumour types, stages, and to answer the question of whether we can use high throughput proteomics to identify these biomarkers. So that team has grown to about 40 or so um, scientists now and includes proteomic scientists, data scientists, but increasingly also medical oncologists. Um, how I came to be involved is at the end of my uh, clinical training, I still needed to do six months of uh, training to complete my time for my letters, thanks to six months of maternity leave that I had uh, as advanced trainee. And uh, I, I got to know Roger Riddell and found that the work they were doing was very interesting. So I actually took up a research fellow position with them to help uh, with bringing clinically relevant questions and cohorts in, into the ProCAN team. So yes, it's uh, growing and we've now got several PhD students who are also medical oncologists working in that space. Wow, what a, what a exciting time, I think, to be in the oncology or research sphere. Moving on to, I think, maybe a little bit more applicable to our junior colleagues looking for future career directions. You know, Jenny has done remarkable things, as, as you can probably already hear. But where before I came to the Kinghorn and started working with such a supportive team, I didn't know very much about early phase trials. We had some phase three studies. They were all kind of a bit not esoteric, but they, I felt detached even as a junior registrar. Can you take us through maybe even your decision to become a clinical trialist or early career drug development specialist and maybe just talk us through your thought process, what you love about it um, and what you can gain as an oncologist looking to, you know, set yourself apart from the, uh, the hordes. <laughs> Yeah, so I think the early phase uh, opportunity for me actually came about uh, fairly unexpectedly. So I had done all my core training through Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, RPA, Concord, which is a fabulous network. But also, like you, I, through my core training, did not have much experience with early phase trials and drug development. And so I did want to broaden my experience a little bit and also in a different network. So uh, worked uh, at Westmead and Blacktown Hospital, which uh, also has a very good trials network and worked as a trials fellow. And particularly at Blacktown Hospital, got a lot of experience working in early phase trials and really enjoyed that role. I guess broadly, early phase trials refers to phase one slash phase two clinical trials. 
that focus more on exploring novel compounds or novel compounds in combination in patients for the first time, identifying toxicity in the right dose, um, and then exploring preliminary uh, signs of efficacy, usually in expansion cohorts. Uh, once there's promising data in that space, then trials then often move into a more phase three uh, setting where there's often randomization with a standard of care regimen. Something I really enjoy in early phase trials is the ability to interact closely with uh, scientists and sponsors. So uh, we do have lots of meetings to discuss data as patients are enrolled and um, the safety of each dose level is evaluated. But I think in doing that, we're able to really engage deeply with the researchers uh, who are coordinating and running the trial, as well as other investigators from all around the world. So I find that aspect quite enjoyable. Increasingly, I think Australia is a really uh, attractive place to run early phase trials, the way our, our government and tax incentives um, and the, our efficient startup timelines are compared to other countries overseas. So we are seeing increasingly more and more early phase activity across many hospitals. Uh, even in New South Wales, we have a really robust network of 10 hospitals that run trials and we coordinate and collaborate together. Um, and I think really this is going to see an increasing uh, opportunities for our patients to access novel therapies uh, especially in rare cancers where there may not be uh, good access or good funding for um, effective treatments for these cancers. So I think really benefits patients. From a clinician point of view, having experience in drug development, I think is really helpful in uh, being, you know, employable and potentially looking into translational research as well because you understand how to bring a drug from the lab into the clinic. And Jenny, sort of just to ping off what you mentioned just then in terms of benefits of, of early drug development and working in that area, I know that there will be at least a handful of people listening to this who say, this sounds great, Jenny, you've sold me. Um, from your end as someone who's looking to bring people into the early drug development fold, are there any sort of particular skills or attributes that you think would set a theoretical, hypothetical candidate, as an example, in the early drug development phase? Yeah, I think probably the attributes that are most important working in uh, clinical trials is uh, attention to detail, because certainly trial protocols can be very complicated. Uh, eligibility requires very thorough checking and cross-checking and patients' eligibility for specific trials changes and sometimes even protocols can change as well. So I think having that attention is quite important to ensure that data is captured accurately, but also that you know we're efficiently assessing our patients and matching them for the right trials because patients who have come to see us for trials often have advanced disease, which is often treatment refractory and they don't have the luxury of time. Uh, so we really want to get these patients onto treatment if there is a good option for them. Uh, other attributes, I guess, is being a very strong team player. And certainly we're very lucky here at the Kinghorn to have a fabulous team of almost 10 uh, phase one coordinators. We work closely with our regulatory team, with trials pharmacy, um, and also education and startup teams. And in phase one, one of the really great things is that we're not working in isolation. There's often many 
investigators and many coordinators who step in and help each other out. So being able to collaborate and work closely with uh, study coordinators is, I think, really important. It's always nice to feel that you're not a silo in a big system of COGS. So that's good to hear, Jenny. Since your time doing, I guess, phase one and from a person on the ground running numerous trials, what do you think if we're futuristically looking at the trials you've got now and let's talk about, you know, you've got Aussie Mertonib, which, you know, five years ago wasn't heard of, all these amazing drugs. What do you think is the most underrated novel agent that you've seen to date or they might have the biggest future application? I think that's a very uh, tricky question um, because certainly there's so many uh, drugs and opportunities uh, I won't I'm, hold it against I'm you, Jenny. Yeah, I'm actually not going to name a specific drug, but I think what I'll say, and this probably comes back to my work with Procan, is I think we need to be looking actually more at novel combinations. Mm. So taking osimertinib as an example, um, you know, it works really well in the vast majority with of patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, but there are some patients that don't derive uh, good benefit and in some earlier research I did with one of my uh, predecessors and um, uh, mentor, Stephen Cow, who identified that PDL1 high EGFR mutant non small cell lung cancer patients tended to not derive as much benefit uh, with osimertinib. And so the question was could we add a combination to osimertinib to improve their response? And I think there are many examples across all tumor types where like a single drug, uh, KRAS G12C alone may not work well in some patients. You really need to look at a combination. There are many trials in this space looking at combinations. And so I think we do need better biomarkers to be able to mine our existing drugs um, better. And Jenny, you've mentioned before, obviously, that these uh, the patients that enter into early drug development trials, phase one trials, uh, I think it, most people who have worked in oncology, leaving aside the uh, the actual physical trial component, would have seen people on early drug trials. And as you've said, they're usually very heavily pre-treated. Uh, they can be really feeling the effects of their cancer and after effects of previous treatment. But what, in your experience, are some barriers to these patients actually being involved and, and getting involved in in phase one trials? Because it is a significant investment in time, effort, and it's quite, it can be quite taxing. Yes, absolutely. So I think phase one trials are not for everyone. And certainly it takes the right uh, patient with the right sort of biology, potentially a right biomarker where an early phase uh, drug might have a much higher chance of efficacy. But also there are other complicated factors, including patients' background, their socioeconomic and um, their uh, cultural background and English speaking skills, which can make enrollment to trials more challenging. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Abhijit Powell, is really you know, making progress in this space with his PhD, looking at improving access to trials by the cold population. Uh, and I think we have a long way to go in terms of making 
trials more comprehensible for people who don't speak English well or who who are not very literate. If you look at a typical patient information consent form, they're often 20 pages or longer with very technical jargon. And there really is a need to be able to simplify what trials are and simplify patient information sheets uh, for people of all diverse backgrounds. Geography has also been challenging, but I think with COVID-19, there's been some really great improvements in trials access for patients who are based in regional and remote uh, areas in Australia. Uh, throughout COVID and looking at our own data, about a third of our patients treated at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in the last two years came from regional and rural areas across Australia. And in fact, we actually didn't see a decline in where patients came after COVID lockdowns. And we think this is probably due to increased telehealth, um, the ability to do remote monitoring, sometimes able to liaise with local hospitals to do things like disconnection of 5FU um, and other local assessments um, in between PK dosing for people closer to home. So I think there's still lots of barriers with trial participation, but hopefully over time we'll be able to gradually overcome some of those challenges. I would, I, my next question was going to be how can one achieve to overcome such barriers, but I feel that's a bit of an open-ended question and maybe not a huge, uh, there, there would be ongoing challenges to actually answering that given how things are developing. What I would love to talk about is this uh, elusive name called Nectar, Nectar being a potential, I guess it's a uh, heterogeneous group of hospitals that work together to share trial information, data, you know, liaising with medical oncologists, the whole idea that if there's not a trial available at one site, there might be another trial available at another site that fits, you know, G, G, uh, KRAS, G12C, you know, mutation or something like that. Could you talk us through, and I don't know if you would involved in the development of it, but how that's come to be and the benefits for patients and clinicians in utilising such a broad network of information and opportunities. Yeah, it's a great point, Josh. And Nectar actually came about before I started. It stands for the New South Wales Early Phase Clinical Trials Alliance. And I believe it started up maybe about four or five years ago uh, when a few phase one centres in New South Wales, namely Lifehouse, Scientia and St Vincent's Hospital, identified the need to be able to collaborate in terms of being able to bring patients to trials that might be uh, in a specific location to be able to cross-refer potential trials that one site couldn't run but another site might be able to run. Um, and... Uh, really help with moving drug development forward in New South Wales. These days, we're very fortunate to have a dedicated uh, manager, Nectar Max, who really uh, does a lot of work on the ground with coordinating uh, a lot of us and hosting the fortnightly meetings that we have. The network comprises about 10 hospitals around New South Wales. And we together review cases if there's a challenging patient needing the phase one trial option. 
Uh, we sometimes look at trial feasibilities together to identify the most suitable sites and then to ensure that we're not overlapping in terms of recruiting a competing population. Um, and each year we also host an annual drug development meeting. The most recent one was only a few weeks ago. We were able to bring a few key speakers internationally as well as identify uh, some exciting pipelines from some major biotech and pharmaceutical companies. So yes, I think it's a really great network and I think it's a really strength in numbers. Jenny, if I might sort of pick your brain about your own personal experience, because as you've mentioned in any early drug development team, the emphasis is very much on team. But in terms of your own personal experience in in this area, my question is twofold, really. What would you say is the most rewarding aspect of your job? And you can choose any sort of aspect, the interpersonal, the professional, the scientific. And the flip side of that coin is what do you think is the biggest challenge that you've experienced in the area? So I think in terms of the reward, um, the interpersonal aspect I think really comes down to the core reason I chose oncology is being able to uh, work really closely with patients during a very vulnerable, challenging time in their life and making a difference to their journey through cancer. Um, And I think phase one trials is really at the pointy end of that when often patients might be straggling uh, supportive care versus trials or perhaps considering a standard of care therapy, which may or may not have very good efficacy. And helping patients and their families come to that decision, I think, is sometimes a very challenging one. And often requires sort of understanding a lot about the patient, what their values are, um, and whether whether or not a trial is uh, the right thing for them. I don't refer all my patients onto a trial, and in fact, sometimes I might refer them for a second opinion if they're really actually seeking to understand if there's any uh, further standard of care therapies that might be appropriate. In um, many, I do involve uh, palliative and supportive care. Sometimes the trials don't work out and the patients, you know, progress after the first scan or even uh, before the first scan. But I think sometimes the uh, the closeness with which we work with our phase one patients, the fact that we see them so often and that interpersonal relationships sometimes can be as therapeutic, I guess, as, you know, the drug itself in a way. Uh, so, I mean, of course, we'd hope that the patients that we treat respond, derive benefit, live longer. But I think quality of life is also really important. And one aspect which I'm not doing much work on, but I think we do need to look on more is PROs and quality of life for patients on early phase trial. Um, in terms of, the, I guess, challenges, so I think paperwork's probably one of the biggest challenges, the, uh, the amount of signing, the amount of meetings, and the fact that sometimes these are outside of working hours, which can make work-life balance somewhat difficult, especially with a young toddler in the house. So, yep, that's probably something that's the the hardest uh, in the role. Work-life balance is something that I think you probably still do a remarkable, remarkably well, given everything you're juggling uh, at the moment, Jenny. And the, the, uh, the comment that struck me that I, I really resonate with is helping patients and their families understand, I guess, trials and their disease and 
It's about holding their hand, not holding their hand, but assisting them through their journey with cancer because most of these drugs, despite our best efforts, won't cure someone, but at least they might give them some good quality of life and some time with those they love. And you can't help but get involved and and care about these people who just want to, you know, live another year. Taking a slightly different track now and looking at some of your other work, Jenny, Michael and I have spoken on this podcast many a time about online and offline about where do we want to see our careers going and what do we want from our career in oncology or medicine or treating cancer. And you've been, you've done something remarkable, which hasn't been done in Australia and maybe only a limited internationally. You've created a, essentially a transgenerational mentorship program where senior oncologists are linked with junior registrars or even senior registrars to kind of help with career building and development and exploration of what their wants and their needs are. Can you talk us a little bit more about how this came to be and what your aims are with this? Yeah, I guess the first thing I wanted to highlight with the mentorship program is again that it's a team effort and you really need to give kudos to uh, Dr. Udit Nindra who's been on the ground driving the mentorship program. So he's a currently a um, training and PhD student at Liverpool Hospital. Uh, Josh, you know him very well, having recently co-authored with him. Um, but Uda and I have been doing this uh, initiative now for a bit over a year, and it sort of started with my role with the New South Wales Medical Oncology AT Committee, Advanced Training Committee, uh, where we were developing educational resources and opportunities for trainees across New South Wales that identified that there actually was uh, a lack of um, avenues to help trainees with career guidance and uh, to help with increasing their professional fulfilment. And so identified that, you know, mentorship really could fulfil that gap. There's been some work in uh, other specialties. So one of my previous mentors, Bethan Richards, who's the Chief Wellness Officer at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, set up a mentorship training pro- mentorship program for basic physician trainees there. And we used some of her surveys to survey the oncology workforce. And last year in a pilot mentorship program identified these phenomenal rates of burnout, uh, 93% of trainees and 54% of consultants were classified as burnt out on the NASDAQ burnout index. And in that small pilot, we really got great engagement and a lot of the mentors and mentees felt that by matching and being able to have an independent person to debrief with uh, really sort of helped them throughout the year, which was really hard with COVID. And so with that success this year, we've rolled, rolled out the NOMP, which stands for the National Oncology Mentorship Program, which we're very fortunate to have formal uh, MOGA sponsorship. That's been rolled out uh, last month and we've had already 56 pairs sign up nationally. Uh, the data, I won't be able to share all the data as yet, but it's quite alarming the rates of baseline burnout as well as low professional fulfilment and I think as both of you have identified uh, career uncertainty is a major driving factor for that in trainees so that's hopefully something that we'll be able to 
help with uh, moving forwards. It's a fantastic initiative and for our Australian listeners, if you're feeling a little bit under the pump as we all do, or even if you even if you're not, it's definitely something that we would encourage you to to explore and sign up with. Um, and I guess Jenny, with with that program, if I may encourage you to dream, as it were, in in the years going forward, what do you envisage uh, for for the mentorship program? Do you think um, that there might be other avenues of education or uh, support? Paint paint me a picture, I guess, of of where you might think that this this fantastic uh, initiative may end up. Yeah. So at the moment. Uh, the 2023 program is entirely virtual. So our initial kickoff uh, meetings were done on Zoom. Um, we do hope to have a face-to-face meetup at the MOGA annual scientific meeting in Perth this year. But hopefully with funding um, and more support next year, there will be more face-to-face components. So that mentors and mentees can meet up in person. And we've tried to match most within the state to make that logistically a bit easier. I think moving forwards, having a a regular process by which trainees who enter oncology have a system where they can sign up with and meet a mentor who can help them throughout their training uh, would be fabulous. And I think there's also a role for people like myself who are sort of earlier phase junior consultants seeking mentorship from more senior established uh, consultants in particular areas that are of interest. Some of my colleagues have wanted to be matched with uh, someone else who's been head of department given their new you know, role in that. Uh, myself, I guess it would be great to find a mentor in the drug development space. So I think there's you know ongoing opportunities that mentorship can have in terms of helping trainees through but also would help on the other end with succession planning as well and identifying um, how more senior oncologists if they want to cut down or you know change their pathway away from clinical medicine into other avenues may be able to you know pass the baton on to their junior colleagues. I think uh, as registrars and fellows we often forget that our specialists and consultant colleagues also have very similar questions, even if it seems like such a distant dream for people like Michael or myself. Um, Jenny, to we, we always finish our episode with one final thought-provoking question. You know, you are someone who has blazed through so many challenges to get where you are today, and it's, it's no... Um, it's it's no feats where you've got to without so much hard work and blood, sweat and tears. But if you could look back at a young Jenny, maybe even a <laughs> intern Jenny or a med school Jenny, and maybe you've always had this dream and you're like, I'm going to be this phase one trialist and save the world one person at a time. What lesson or piece of advice might you give your younger self? Ah, that's a great question, Josh. And I think certainly for me, and this might reflect similarly for others, uh, over planning and, and trying to, you know, map your career out five, ten years in advance into a specific, you know, niche area and uh, subspecialty, I think 
may not necessarily work out that way. And a lot of us have anxiety because we're so familiar through medical school and then in training, knowing what the next year or two will look like. But when you get to the end of training, really the world is uh, your oyster. You can really choose a role that, you know, fulfills your passion and uh, your interests. And I think having, uh, being open-minded and enjoying the process uh, is really important. When you get to the other end, there's actually heaps of other challenges and uh, lots of other, other uh, ch- challenging aspects with the role as a consultant, bureaucracy, uh, relationships, the responsibility, I guess. Um, so enjoy time as tra- during training because that doesn't come back. That's, I think, that's, yeah, the key thing I would say to my younger self. A typically wise uh, piece of advice, Jenny. And thank you so much for coming on. It has been, as we always say on this episode when we have special guests, a tour de force. That's one of our favourite uh, phrases to use, but it is no less true of covering everything from science to opening, perhaps opening the door a little bit and giving our listeners a peek into the inscrutable world of clinical trials, as well as giving a very human aspect to training. So it's really apparent. It's apparent to me. I know Josh has mentioned this at times that you are someone who has a finger in every pie, talents in every area, and we really appreciate you spending a bit of time on our podcast and passing that on. No problems. Thanks so much for having me. Join us next time on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we will conclude our epic trilogy surrounding prostate cancer with a look at the later lines of therapy. This will include a look at lutetium, PSMA, a novel directed therapy specifically towards prostate cancer, as well as the more traditional chemotherapy with cabazitaxel. So we hope to see you there. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.